0: Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 24 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, you're not going to want to start with this episode. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City police detective Catherine Catane is finally back on active duty. After being put on administrative leave for nearly two months, Kate was starting to fear that she was going crazy. Now she has accepted a transfer to the elite Special Investigations Division, under the command of the charismatic Captain Rowan Shaw. In last week's episode, Kate got to know her new partner, Corporal Elizabeth Moore. Shaw recruited this brilliant young woman from the Fugitive Enforcement Division, which is in charge of cracking cold cases. Now in SID, Lizzie works in the Missing Persons section— where she hopes that she can get justice for people before it's too late. Kate learned that Lizzie was a Skywalker, a member of the elite class of Metamorph society, but that she had been raised overseas in a series of international schools in developing countries. Lizzie has seen firsthand the ways that much of the world was impoverished so she and her family could have plenty, so now she believes it is her duty to use her talents and education to help others. Kate and Lizzie then attended an all-hands briefing at SID, where Captain Shaw introduced the team to their new target, a terrorist insurgency against the Vampire Syndicate, which is now moving openly in Metamore City. Led by a mysterious figure known as the White Widow, this new conspiracy is dedicated to bringing down Malcolmard Ardvalos, by any means necessary. Captain Shaw blames the Whites for a recent string of murder kidnappings in the city, where street rats have been abducted and used as fuel for some kind of black magic ritual. While some of SID's members would welcome the idea of a terrorist taking out Malcolm, Shaw tells them that they don't need criminal scum to do their dirty work for them. SID's people are the best of the best, and it is they who will take this city back from the hands of the monsters. After the meeting, Shaw gives Kate her new badge and service pistol, officially restoring her to active duty. The captain tells Kate and Lizzie to head up to Precinct 1, where another dead body has just been found, and if the reports from the scene are accurate, it's the same M.O. as the recent murder kidnappings. The forensic team is on their way, but Shaw wants Kate there first to perform an augury. If the killers left any arcane traces on the body, Shaw wants to be sure that Kate can find them. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read By Chris Lester Chapter 24 Kate brought the light flyer down on a broad parking lot of cracked and crumbling asphalt. She popped the canopy, and the cockpit filled with the smells of fish decaying seaweed, and fuel oil. The Solshore docks were crammed with boats and small ships, mostly fishing vessels, with a smattering of light freighters to run goods between Metamore and Erebarb. Beyond the docks the clouds hung dark and threatening over the vast lake. The wind rose, and with it came an eerie, mournful howl, like a thousand men crying out in agony. Kate knew it was only the resonance of air rushing over the mouths of limestone caverns on the lake's southern and western sides, no more mysterious than the action of a flute. All the same, it sent shivers down her spine. That's cheery, Lizzie said, as she hopped to the ground with effortless feline grace. Remind me why people live here again? Cheap waterfront property, Kate said. Another howl echoed over the water, even louder than the first. Complete with your own ghosts, Lizzie said. They don't call it the Sea of Souls for nothing. Kate passed down her crime scene kit, climbed down more carefully than Lizzie had, then pressed the remote to close and lock the light flyer's canopy. Come on, let's see what we've got here. They had spotted the crime scene from the air, a cordon of yellow police tape flanked by a pair of blue and white ground cars. The patrol officers sat on the hood of one of the vehicles, chatting quietly amongst themselves. A corporal spotted the two detectives approaching and rose to greet them. S.I.D.? he asked. That's us, Kate said. What's the news? The officer gestured toward the crime scene. Human female, rukilian or Kumaran? "'Aged eighteen to twenty-five. "'We thought this was a Lightbringer case at first, "'but then Dispatch said you've been looking for scenes like this. "'Do you get many vampire attacks up here?' Lizzie asked. "'No, we don't.' "'He gestured out at the Sea of Souls. "'Somebody told me they don't like the water.' "'It hurts them,' Kate said. "'Morgan had been deeply disappointed when she realized "'that her undead status meant no more trips to the beach, "'not even by moonlight.' They passed under the cordon and entered a narrow alley between two boathouses. The body lay slumped against a large refuse bin, the bronze-brown skin faded to ashen gray. There was no smell of decay yet, so she couldn't have been there for more than a few hours. She was dressed in only a dirty tunic, the southeastern equivalent of her underwear. Whatever else she'd been wearing, the killers must have removed it. Kate closed her eyes and focused her attention on her aura sight, channeling mana to her third eye in the center of her forehead. When she opened her eyes again, her breath caught in her throat. The body had the same purple-black energy clinging to it as the ones she had examined at the morgue, but there was a lot more of it. The woman's body was completely covered in the stuff. More importantly, the energy still had structure to it, It was like looking at the foundations of a house, after the house itself had been removed. You couldn't infer everything about the house's layout, but you could see the basic outlines of it, the general shape of the design. In the same way, the bones of the spell the killers had crafted were still there on the victim they had used to power it. That sort of arcane signature decayed quickly. It was lucky she had been found so soon." Kate put on a pair of nitrile gloves and examined the woman's neck. There were the two neat puncture wounds, with no sign of impressions from any other teeth. Carefully, she checked the creases of the woman's groin. As before, there was the needle mark where they'd drained her blood. All right, it's definitely the same M.O. Kate pointed out the relevant features and explained them for Lizzie's benefit. I'm going to do an augury while we wait for CSI to get here. Doesn't that normally get done after a CSI? The patrol officer asked. Yeah, but we've been having trouble getting a clear lead on these bastards, so the head ME gave me the go-ahead to do it first this time. She went back to her kit and pulled out her augury supplies. The candles, the chalk, and the pocket mirror. Lizzie, how are your tracking skills? Lizzie waggled her hand. Still learning, but I scored high on my scent-matching exams. Good. Get a good whiff of the Vic and everything around her. If the perps left their scent on her clothes or something, I want to know. If you can find a trail, even better. Got it, Kate. Lizzie slipped on her own pair of gloves and started carefully smelling the body, centimeter by centimeter, while disturbing the scene as little as possible. Meanwhile, Kate laid out the circles for the augury, using the body itself as the focus for the spell. Casting an augury directly on a body was a lot trickier than casting it on a place. The human body was constantly turning itself over, as old cells died and were replaced. Even the bones and brain were regularly swapping out old atoms for new ones. As a result, an augury on a body could usually only see back for a very limited window of time, and the images were often scattered, incomplete, and out of context. It was one of several reasons why auguries were not admissible evidence in court. Whenever possible, Kate focused her auguries on places, not people. Here, though, that would be of little use. The woman probably hadn't been killed at the docks, and if Kate's augury of Lyle's friend was any indication, the killers were probably wearing those black masks when they came by to dispose of her. If Kate was going to have any chance at a lead, the body was all she had. Once Lizzie was finished, she gave Kate the thumbs-up, and moved behind her to watch. Kate completed her casting circles, then placed a small arcane mark on the woman's forehead, tagging her as the focus of the augury. Then she took out her arthana, called up her mana, and cast the spell. In the circle of light that appeared above Kate's mirror, she saw what looked like an unfinished basement in a single-family house— the view swung left, then right, then back to center, like a shaky, handheld video camera. She realized that since she had put the focus of the spell on the woman's forehead, her view was following what the woman herself had looked at. The woman's gaze turned downward, and Kate saw that her legs were shackled to a large, X-shaped cross. Her arms were not in view— so Kate supposed that they must have been bound over her head in the same fashion. An IV line ran from between the woman's legs and down to a large earthenware jar, like an ancient Swaleman amphora. The jar was covered in arcane symbols of a jagged, sinister design, and as the blood dribbled into it, the symbols pulsed with a dull red glow. Kate felt nauseated just looking at those marks— even through the second-hand filter of the vision. The scene rippled like the surface of a pond, then went dark. Kate focused her will on the spell, pushing it further back in time. A moment later there was another ripple, and then a hood was pulled off of the woman's head. A man's face loomed into view. He was a Kitchlander of indeterminate age, with a thin face, sallow skin, and dark bushy hair and eyebrows. His beard was trimmed short and shaped into a point at the chin. He wore military-style fatigues and a long-sleeved shirt of solid black. Kate saw some protection glyphs woven into the fabric with fine silver thread. The woman tried to turn her head away from the man, but he reached out and grabbed her chin, turning her face back toward him. He examined her with the sort of clinical detachment that cops normally reserved for the already dead. At last, he nodded in satisfaction and spoke a one-syllable word. Kate's auguries didn't come with audio, but it looked like he had said, Good. He turned away, said something else to someone out of view, then listened to their response. As he turned back to look at his victim again, Kate watched his lips carefully. The vampire prince will learn fear soon enough, he seemed to be saying. He looked up at the woman's eyes, and Kate saw a brief flash of some emotion. Pity, perhaps? Don't worry, little whore, he said, speaking slowly and with obviously careful diction. Maybe she doesn't understand common very well, Kate thought. Your master will pay for what he has done to you. Your sacrifice will feed the fire of his destruction. This is a good death, a worthy death. He reached up again, this time with an open palm, and touched her cheek. Kate saw it when the woman flinched away and looked at the floor. The vision fragmented and went dark again. Gritting her teeth, Kate pushed the spell as far back as she could go. Instead of continuous scenes, she got a succession of images. Flashes of gunfire. The woman crawling on her belly over asphalt and broken glass. A crowded van rocked by an explosion. A group of young women standing in a loose circle next to a white van in a dimly-lit warehouse. A short Hanese woman in a business suit peering critically into her mouth. A pair of syndicate thugs sporting assault rifles and red bandanas, escorting the victim and several others out of a dark compartment of corrugated steel. All of the others with her seemed to be of the same southeastern ethnicity as the victim herself. Kate got one final image, looking out at Metamore City from the deck of a ship. Then the spell reached its limits, and the augury went dark. Kate broke the circle and let the manna drain into the earth, ending the spell. She sat back on her heels and stared at the lifeless body before her. The images of the augury played back with crystalline perfection in her eidetic memory. She was an immigrant, Kate said to Lizzie, her voice low and subdued. Smuggled in to work for the vampires. Probably one of those missing prostitutes. She's Kumari. Lizzie observed. They've been under enemy occupation for generations. She was probably willing to do anything for a chance to get away. Fuck. Kate shook her head. After a moment, she looked back at Lizzie, curiously. How do you know she was Kumari? Lizzie gestured at the spot in the air where the images had appeared. From the clothes the other immigrants were wearing. Mom did some work in the refugee camps during the last uprising, so I know the look. Kate frowned, thinking back on what else she had seen. They were in a house with a basement. That means they weren't in one of the valley boroughs. Solshore, or Glen Avery, or Broadfield. or well, somewhere outside the city, Lizzie said. Maybe, but all the killings so far have been in the city. And the guy said... The vampire prince will learn fear soon enough. Malcolm's a local problem. Lizzie acknowledged this with a flick of her tail. True. Can you recreate the image of her abductor? Kate closed her eyes, called up the image of the man in her mind, and gestured with her Arthana. A whisper of manna flowed out through the blade, and a figment of the man's face appeared in front of her. Lizzie stared intently at the man's face for a long moment, Then a connection seemed to click in her mind, and the woman's ears and whiskers lay flat. Oh, gods, she whispered. Nevin? Kate looked at her sharply. Wait a minute. You know this guy? Shaken, Lizzie nodded. I did. Nevin Odlito. I went to school with this man. She shook her head, eyes wide. I don't believe this. Quickly, Kate packed up her supplies and headed back to the light flyer. Once there, she woke up the computer and pulled the records on Nevin Ardledo. Then she turned on the police radio and set it for broad-spectrum transmission. Code 10! Code 10! Code 10! she said. She paused, waiting for other police to clear the airwaves. After a few seconds, a voice responded. SID-29, dispatch. You are go for Code 10. Over. Be on the lookout for Nevin Ardledo, Kate said. Imperial ID number 7 Alpha er Charlie Delta 2, Bravo Victor 3. Subject is wanted for questioning in connection to a 187 in Solshore, 894 Harbor Street. Subject should be considered armed and dangerous. End Code 10. Over. The reply came a few seconds later. SID-29, dispatch copies Bolo for Nevin Ardlito, 1723. Kate hung up the transmitter and started the light flyer's engine. Lizzie was already climbing back into the co-pilot's seat. We're not waiting for CSI, she asked. Not this time. You just gave us the best lead we've gotten on this case. If they find his DNA on the Vic, we're going to need something to match it with. It only took a few minutes to fly from the crime scene to Nevin's address, a two-story home in one of the nicer neighborhoods of eastern Soulshore. Kate circled the house from a block away, flying low to stay below the cloud cover. There didn't seem to be anyone home. All right, looks like we're in the clear, Kate said. I'm going to set down in the driveway. You go around to the side of the garage there and grab a bag from the trash cans. Don't stop to look through it, just shove it in the cargo hold. Right, Lizzie said. Kate extended the landing struts and dropped the light flyer to the pavement so fast the little craft rocked on its suspension. Lizzie leapt out and headed for the side of the garage. Meanwhile, Kate grabbed a couple of sterile swabs from her crime scene kit and ran to the front door. She broke the seal on one of the swabs, ran the cotton tip carefully over the surface of the doorknob, then placed it gingerly back inside the container and twisted it shut. Then she ran out to the mailbox at the end of the driveway and repeated the process on the mailbox handle. Kate returned to the flyer just as Lizzie was shoving a medium-sized garbage bag into the cargo compartment. Her tail was lashing back and forth with excitement, and Kate felt a grin spreading across her own face. We're gonna get this, bastard. Back in the cockpit, Kate slammed the canopy shut and made the flyer leap into the air. They disappeared back into the low-hanging clouds, then angled south and headed for S.I.D. headquarters. The whole process, from landing to takeoff, had taken less than two minutes. So who is this guy? Kate asked, once she had their course plugged into the autopilot. How do you know him? Lizzie looked out the canopy to her right, away from Kate. Her ears lay back against her skull. We were in the same common room at Chisholm she said. Kate frowned. What's that? Lizzie gestured vaguely. It's a group of students who share representation in the student government. It's supposed to act as an academic community for shared learning and socialization. But it doesn't, Lizzie snorted. Mostly it seems to function as a tool for social conformity, and as a way for future leaders of the Empire to acquire mates and minions— Ah. Kate read between the lines. So this Nevin guy, was he looking for a mate or a minion? Lizzie's tail twitched. Both, I think. Or at least he wasn't clear on the distinction. Ugh, one of those. Yes. You dated him? Lizzie sighed. Only once, and for my part it was an accident. He invited me to join him for dinner, and then we could visit St. Yusuf's. I was still in my first semester. I'd only been here two months. I didn't realize it was a euphemism. Kate cocked her head. I've lived here for years, and I've never heard that one. What's it mean? Lizzie's lip curled in irony. It's pretty obscure. St. Yusuf is the patron saint of the university, but he's also the patron saint of happy deaths. Lizzie hesitated. Um... In some languages, happy death is an expression for... For orgasm. Yeah, I got that one, Kate said. Well, I'm afraid I took it all rather too literally for young Nevin. There's a shrine to St. Yusuf on campus, you see, and going to visit it seemed like a wonderful enrichment experience. I told him I wanted to meet earlier for dinner so we could attend the Evensong service. I think he spent days trying to figure out what sexual act I was referring to. Kate barked a laugh. Oh, man, I'm guessing things went downhill from there. I'm afraid so, Lizzie said. She fell silent for a long moment. Then, in a softer voice, she added, We were in that common room together for three years. I often thought there was something unpleasant about him, but I never imagined he would become a murderer. Kate reached over and squeezed Lizzie's hand. There's no reason you should have known. If the bad guys all wore black hats, our job would be a lot easier. Lizzie nodded, accepting this. So, we'll need a search warrant for Nevin's house. I can fill out the paperwork and take it to the judge if you like. Thanks, Kate said. That gives me time to run this garbage over to CSI. You sure you don't mind working late? It's not a problem. My family's used to it. Kate felt her eyebrows go up. I thought your parents were still overseas. Oh, they are, Lizzie said, as she pulled out her phone and started typing a text message. I meant my partners. Kate took a moment to parse that. Partners? Plural? Lizzie's eyes lit up. Well, you see, it's all rather complicated. There's Evelyn, my primary. We've been together for three years. And then there's Camus and Lily— They've only been together for eleven months, but I dated Camus for a year before I met Evelyn, and Lily and I have been secondaries for two years. And then Evelyn is also dating Sean, who's an androgyne, and they have a 24-7 DS covenant with Denise, who moved in with us six months ago. Oh, and Sean and Camus just started playing together a few weeks ago, but we're not sure if that's going to be a new secondary or if it's just a fling. Kate's head spun. She waited, but Lizzie did not elaborate further. "'Is that everyone?' she said at last. Lizzie waggled her hand. "'Well, sort of. Most of us have other secondaries and playmates, but they don't live with us, so I'm leaving them out for simplicity's sake.' Kate stared hard into her partner's face, looking for some clue that Lizzie was fucking with her. As near as she could tell, though, the young woman was completely sincere— Simplicity. Right. Kate turned her attention back to flying. If this was what the dating game had turned into, maybe it was just as well that she hadn't been on the field lately. Stick with your incubus fucktoy, she told herself. At least that isn't complicated. And that's the end of Chapter 24. Come back next time, when Morgan gets a visit at work from John, and Jared runs into some unexpected complications. Virginia Woolf said, Every secret of a writer's soul, every experience of his life, every quality of his mind, is written large in his works. So, come take a look inside my deepest self, as we check out the weekly writing report. Over the last two weeks, I wrote 6,728 words in 10.5 hours, averaging 641 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 28 days without breaking my chain. I've continued to move forward on homecoming, getting around four or 500 words written every day. That's not that much. It takes me about 45 minutes on my lunch break every day. But it adds up, especially when I do it every day. The words are flowing steadily now, and I almost always end the day's session feeling like I could say more if I had more time. It's a wonderful feeling, and I'm glad to be back in the habit again. As of now, I'm almost finished with Chapter 4, and the story is over 10,000 words and counting. Looking back at the month of October, I wrote a total of 12,637 words in 23 days, averaging 549 words per day. I spent 20.5 hours writing last month. Compared to September, my word count increased by 63%, and my writing time increased by 100%. October was the most productive writing month I've had since September 2017, and it was better than 15 of the last 24 months. It just goes to show a persistent daily writing habit really pays off. Over on the Patreon feed, I've finally started releasing my backlog of author commentaries. These little podcast episodes are recorded on my evening walks with my dogs, and very lightly edited. They're usually between 15 and 30 minutes, and I talk about all sorts of easter eggs, writing insights, and behind-the-scenes bits of the story world. So, if you've ever wondered about Evan and Ava Salindi's life before becoming a runner— or which characters in my books are inspired by real-life people, or how Lizzie's upbringing reflects the strengths and weaknesses of the neoliberal economic consensus, well, this is the show for you. My Behind the Episode podcast is open to all of my Patreon patrons, and you can get it delivered in a custom, personalized RSS feed, which you can listen to with any podcatcher. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash Lester and make a pledge today.
1: And now, the feedback. Hi, Chris. It's Jason Bligh, a.k.a. Oz here. Just listened to Chapter 22 of The Lost and the Least, and because I've bought the book and obviously finished it by now, I'm really enjoying the next level of detail that I'm able to peel back listening to your podcast. You really rock as a narrator, so loving it. And also, I feel like a bit of a dummy, but I didn't actually realize Raven and the Writing Desk was a different podcast from the original Metamore City feed. So i now subscribed and left a review on that podcast as well. I was still getting your episodes on the older podcast feed. so I'd encourage other people that haven't reviewed the Raven and the Writing Desk to do so.
0: Hi, Jason. I'm glad to hear you're still enjoying the story on your second time through. And yes, The Raven and the Writing Desk is simulcast to both its own feed and the old Metamore City feed. But if you want to help spread the word about the new show, the best place to do that is on the new feed. You can find the link to the show's iTunes page in
1: the show notes. And my goodness, mind blown on the uh, coffee as a psychology profile telltale. I'm absolutely loving it. I've never thought of it before, and I've just spent the last half an hour psychoanalyzing absolutely everybody I've ever sat down for a coffee with. This could continue to keep me amused all day. Keep up the great work, and can't wait to listen to the next one. Bye-bye.
0: If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to Feedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash authorchrislester, the fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is @authorchrislester@wandering.shop. at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press.